on what we did this morning because that's a big subject, all right? Being peacemakers, uh, it kind of makes us scratch our heads a little bit because a whole lot of the... Are you hearing all right, Ruth? All right. Uh, a lot of the barriers that separate us are hidden. We don't see them. All right? Now, my first example of that is those who believe that the Broncos are the top team going into the uh, Super Bowl here in two weeks are the good, faithful, mature people, those who think that, I'm sorry, that, that's not hidden. I was going to talk about the heathen, but now we're, we're, we dare not go there place, I guess. No, there's a lot of stuff that is hidden, and it's because it's so comfortable. Um, how many of you have a fa favorite chair you sit in most of the time? All right? Have you ever had a favorite chair that had a spring that was beginning to come through? All right? Every once in a while, I don't know, maybe it's just because I sit so heavy in it or whatever, I have to get a different chair, because, but it's a long time coming. And sometimes I'll sit there with something uncomfortable pushing on me and put up with it just because I'm so comfortable with that particular chair. All right? So what we're going to do is we're going to go to the second chapter of Ephesians. And Paul is talking about something that was very, very comfortable in his day. <coughs> How many of you know what the wall of hostility was in the temple in Jerusalem? Do you know what the wall of hostility was? Okay, just to remind everybody what we're talking about. This is an architectural lesson here this evening. All right, so I'm going to get my architectural drawing instruments out here. The temple that Solomon built, not as big as what Herod's temple was, was a very large courtyard surrounded by a wall. That was the outer wall. Um, it sat on the foundation of what we now know as the western wall or the wailing wall. That, that was part of it, okay? Inside of that, on one end, are the porticos. They face out over the old city that David had and down through uh, the Kidron Valley. All right? That's where the Sanhedrin met. That's where the, the classes met for the seminary. That's where the laws were written, interpreted, and all the other things. It's called the colonnade uh, down on the, on the far end. In the middle, before you get to the temple... There was a wall that was built inside the courtyard of the main temple that surrounded the area around the temple itself. Inside the temple, inside that wall, was the temple and the altar where the sacrifices were made. But this was a very high wall. It could have been 30, 40 feet high. And it basically screened off your vision of the temple when you were outside of that wall. All right? And you only had one gate that you could get in. It was the main gate that went in, and there were guards posted at the door. And so 
if you were a good, faithful, observant Jewish man, you could get past the gate guards and go into the inside and offer your sacrifices and your sins could be forgiven and you could bring that forgiveness back to your home. All right, that was the, the, the system that it was. The men went in to offer the sacrifices for the whole family group. Then they brought that back. They had a family meeting, and the fathers would convey the grace and the forgiveness of God to their families. All right? But that wall was to keep out people who were unclean. Okay? And... What do you suppose they called the courtyard outside the wall, the big tall wall? They called it the courtyard of the women. Mm-hmm. The courtyard of the women. And even today, the, if you go to the Wailing Wall, there's this whole big long section of the wall where the men are praying, and then there's this little tiny one over here, just, just about this big. And the women are all stacked up there against that section of the wall, taking their turns to get up together. So this was the courtyard of the women. It was also called the courtyard of the Gentiles. You could come in through the Golden Gate into that outer courtyard as a Gentile individual. But you couldn't get through the gate. Even if you dressed like a Jew, even if you looked like a Jew, you couldn't get through the gate because there were very strict rules about who would be allowed to go in and who was going to be kept on the outside. That big tall wall was called the wall of hostility. All right? Because it divided those who could get grace and forgiveness and power and answers to their prayers, and those who had to stay on the outside. All right? It had been that way since Solomon's day. It wasn't that way in the tabernacle days. All right? It wasn't that way when the tabernacle was built out in the desert. But it was that way when the temple was built in Jerusalem. And now let's go to Ephesians 2. All right? Get my little colorful Bible going here. And I'm going to start Ephesians 2, 8. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and not for yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, we remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Remember the peacemaker this morning. He is our peace. 
He has created peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Hmm, isn't that interesting? Jesus Christ broke down the big, tall, powerful wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners, aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and the members of God's household built on a foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Okay, do you get the picture? Now, now that you know the architectural picture that is the sort of the diagram that I've drawn with my fingers, you can begin to see that those who were outside the wall by birth, being Gentile, or by being, let's say, deformed at birth, birth defects, uh, the man who was born blind couldn't go in, the men who were crippled uh, couldn't go in, and so there were a lot of rules that kept people on one side of the wall or the other. And it had become so normal that they didn't even think about it. It just seemed like that's what it was supposed to be. Hadn't it always been so? Jesus came with a wrecking ball. <laughs> and he said, no more two but one. And he did it in every imaginable way. He had women who followed him, um, women who poured ointment on his feet and cried and wiped his feet with their hair. Ooh, what a detestable thing to have someone do. wasn't allowable in that society. Don't know that I'd feel that comfortable if somebody was pouring ointment on my feet while I rested at the table. Society says there are some things that just shouldn't happen. And yet, there was Jesus allowing this to take place and recognizing the lady and forgiving her sin and sending her on her way. What? Sending her on her way, forgiven? Not good. Okay? How about the man who was at the temple who had been paralyzed for 39 years? Why didn't he go in and ask for a healing in the temple? 
He couldn't. He was an invalid. All right? And in fact, part of the problem that he had, I'll say this gently because I can't verify it in Scripture, all right? When Jesus said, do you want to get well, what was his response? Do you remember? I love memory verses. I love memory work. I don't always get the verse number right, but I love memory work. What did he say? What did the man say? That's right. He didn't have anybody to help him to get into the water when it was stirred by the angel. And somebody always stepped in ahead of him. Thirty-nine years. You know what that tells me? There was a dividing wall of hostility that he just was on the outside of. And he may have created the wall himself. <coughs> Here's the part that actually goes outside of Scripture. I think he was a whiny crybaby. Now, I'm picking up on that just a little bit through some of the whiny words he used. But it could be he just made people so angry and so frustrated that working with him was impossible. You hung out for a while waiting for the water to move, and suddenly you just knew there was some better place to spend your time. And he'd created the wall himself. I just finished a great book. It was, uh, it's called Outline, Outliers. And in the back of the book, there is an appendix. And it talked about how society often has structures and forms that are accepted as normal, but are, well, they seem strange. The man was born, uh, well, his family was born and raised in Jamaica. In Jamaica, the entire society had been through the years regulated by the color of your skin. Now, everyone down there is very dark-skinned. That was a dropping-off point for the slave trade from Africa. But through the years, different, let's say, experiments in mixing the races happened. All right? And if you had a lighter color brown skin than someone else, you were going to get the better jobs. You were going to get the opportunities to go to school. If you happen to end up with a very dark complexion, you were going to work in the fields, you were to do manual labor, and you were considered a almost like a second-class citizen. And as more white landowners and business people and things came in, they usually didn't bring their wives or their families because it was considered a pretty hostile territory, and the skin's coloration got lighter and lighter and lighter, and there were more and more of them. And it was those people who were given the opportunities. In fact, one of the phrases in the book in that um, uh, section was uh, one of his relations, an aunt, was so embarrassed, so humiliated by her custom that when she passed a man who was obviously well-to-do and was a landowner and a business owner, she turned her back on her darker-complected child and pretended not to know 
that was her child so that she could be accepted at a higher level by this businessman she was greeting and ignored and denied her own child and then was guilty about that. And you go, well, we don't have any of that around here. There's none of that in, in our community. Well, it's built in in ways you don't always see. All right? Um, it, not, not color. We're not talking about color. In, in, that was just an example. All right? We have age discrimination for one thing. How many of you want an old geezer for a pastor? Oh, put your hand down. You're just teasing me now. Everybody wants a young pastor. Why? Come on, help me. Why do you want a young pastor? A lot of energy. They're not going to have as many health problems, maybe. <laughs> and what's the phrase? Thou help us draw in young families. Okay? Is it true? Well, some yes and some no. I, but I think you have to challenge some of our assumptions you're going to find that Judy has sort of a chip on her shoulder when she comes for her visit because if you look at the hiring practices in the office in which she's just retiring and leaving, they have passed over my resume <clears throat> hundreds of times and hired 26-year-old females almost exclusively. And you say, why? I have my degree in accounting. I have as much experience as any one of those girls has had. I have run businesses. I have taken care of all kinds of different financial institutions. I have produced financial reports for congregations running millions of dollars in, uh, in budgets each year. Now, what disqualifies me? from working in that office. I'm a 67-year-old man, and they're looking for a 26-year-old female. And that's all that's the difference. And it just happens that that's what they're trying to show is a young, vibrant, energetic organization. So when people come through and new clients come in, They'll go, hey, these people are really with it. They're not uh, uh, working on stuff they learned back in the 1970s. They're, they're right with it. Boy, these, these folks are right here up to date. And then they leave about three years later to get married, have a child, and they have to train somebody new. Now, I'm not criticizing. You understand. I, I have no chip on my shoulder. They do let me work with them once in a while, so but usually as an errand boy or delivery boy. so. <clears throat> but it happens, and it happens within the church, and it happens outside the church. I'll give you one quick example. I was uh, taking care of the church at Cape Coral, Florida, and they were looking for a pastor. 
And I said, I happen to know one that's looking for a congregation, and he's got just the gifts you're looking for. And they said, where does he live? I said, West Virginia. Well, no, 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 no. Can't be considered. Oh, yeah? Why? It'd cost too much to move him down here. We can't afford him. I said, yeah, you're probably right. That's a long ways. Not as far as John Day is from Sarasota. But then my moving van's a little, a little lighter. <laughs> I said, well, yeah. I guess if you make a pencil drawing and you say, I could, we can afford to bring in somebody from maybe as far as 300 miles, or maybe if you're feeling energetic, we could draw the line across and we'll bring somebody in maybe if they live inside the state of Florida. Because right, Cape Coral's way down south. Yeah, you can draw our 500 miles and still be in, in uh, Florida. But how many pastors do you know who actually own their own moving van and won't need to rent somebody, rent it from anybody? I just happen to know this guy does. No. Oh. It, it's, it's not pretty. It's a converted school bus. But he bought it with the purpose of moving wherever, the God call, wherever God called him, and he was ready to go. Now, that isn't the only reason they called him down there to interview and eventually called him to be their pastor from West Virginia. But if you only start with a bunch of assumptions and you start with some well, here's what we think we can handle. Here's what we think we can do. You almost always limit yourself, and, and you find yourself saying, well, then why can't we find something better? Now, this isn't necessarily designed just for pastor, but you'll find that these barriers are sometimes between cities. There are rivalries between communities. There are rivalries within people who've been here a while and newcomers. If you have people who are traveling in from a distance to come to school or come to work, you'll find that they're held in a different level of esteem than people who have lived in this community for some time. Is it good that we have these assumptions? Well, yeah, it, it does help us in some ways because we already know the people that we've lived around. We grew up with them, or we went to school with them, or we worked with them, or they've been my next-door neighbor for 30 years. So we feel safe. People who are coming from outside of a distance, well, they don't always work the same way that we do. It takes a little while to get to know them as well as somebody else. Uh, my, one of the stories I like to tell is my son was a great pitcher when we moved to uh, the Alverton Church. Um, the Alverton Church, they called the church Center Bethel uh, because at one point there were two small churches that were on a circuit, and they built one in the, mid in the middle that could house both of them, and they've never looked back since. So that they now worship in the center Bethel. All right? But when my son went, 
came with us, he was not allowed to play baseball on the community baseball teams because the coaches had their kids playing the key positions on the ball teams and they weren't about to give it up to some preacher's kid from Indiana. Even if he was an ace pitcher, they just weren't even going to do it because their kids needed playtime. All right? It was a, a wall of hostility. Now, inside of a congregation, there are walls also. Not here, I'm, I'm sure I'm talking to the choir, but let me explain one of the situations I ran into when I was in Miami. There's a church in Kendall, and the pastor and I were very close friends because we, we realized very quickly that if you're in Miami, you have to be part pastor and part social scientist. Okay? You had to know the ins and outs of who liked who and who hated... Oh, no, I'm inside the church, I'm sorry. No. Who mistrusted or didn't get along with who. And in his church at the Kendall congregation... There were people there from 42 different nationalities. 42 different national recognizable backgrounds that came together and worshipped in that church. And he said, I spend all of my time walking through the church looking for little clusters of people sitting around different places with kind of upset looks on their faces saying... The ladies from Jamaica won't let us Colombian ladies help them set up the tables for the ladies' tea because it's Jamaican ladies' job to set up the tables for the tea, but the Colombian ladies are not allowed to. Who gave them that instruction? Nobody did. It just kind of grew up naturally. And he would go to the ladies who were from Jamaica and say, I think we need to include other people in your setup team. Well, we're doing it all right, but you're not letting other people share in the ministry. And every day it was the same. He went through the church trying to say, let's open the doors and let everybody be a part on an equal basis but with 40, 42 different recognizable groups, it was a full-time job just keeping peace in one single congregation. Now, we don't have that problem here, but we do have issues. And there are economic issues, and there are background issues. There are people who are Nazarene, and there are people who weren't originally, who are now worshiping with a Nazarene, but... We ran into a problem when I was taking care of the church at Center Bethel because the same people were being asked to do the jobs over and over and over again. And they said, we're tired. And by the way, there's getting to be fewer of us for one reason or another. You know how that goes, right? And they couldn't find anybody that was on the inside to be on the nominating committee any, or be nominated for the positions anymore. I said, well, let's just open some doors 
And let's use a different measuring stick for how we're going to judge when somebody is ready to be in a nominating role for one of the leadership positions. So we actually canceled Sunday night worship services. They let me do it and didn't fire me. It was the most incredible thing I ever went through. I canceled Wednesday night. And they didn't fire me. But what I did is replace them with training courses. Bible-based training courses that met every Sunday night and Wednesday night. And each one ran for a certain number of weeks. Each course was set up so that it would take a certain length of time. And everybody who started on the first week and stayed with the program to the end was able to come up to the front of the church and get a certificate that they had completed one of these training courses. We had four major goals we were hoping to be able to get to, and each one of the classes had one of those four primary goals in there as its major focus. There was a little splash over sometimes between some of the major goals, but you get the idea. We actually turned the church into a university, an extension of some college or Bible school, whatever you want to call it. But really, we just did it on our own. It wasn't an extension of anything. And I wrote the curriculum, and I did almost all the teaching. <laughs> so it was a Bob University. You know how kind of uh, educational light. <laughs> but what happened was people who had never come to Wednesday night Bible study started coming. People who had dropped out of Sunday evening services years before started coming because they had something they wanted to learn. They had something that was going to be of value. I promised that every single minute it was never going to go past one hour, which was a struggle with no clock in here. It's just a bit of a struggle, all right? But they had plenty of clocks there. And it always started on time, always ended on time, exactly one hour. It was tightly packed. There was no messing around. It was just straightforward. Here's what God's Word says, or here's what we need to learn, and here's what we have to do, all right? And every time people would come to the front of the church and pick up their certificates, their name was being marked down as having completed one of the classes. Now, you speed forward a year. It's time for the nominating ballot. Who are you going to think about? The guy who's been on council? 15 years? Well, yeah. Still going to consider that. But he hasn't completed any of the courses. Well, he just didn't. He's busy. He was working the wrong shift. I'm not saying it's wrong. He just couldn't complete any of the courses. He came to a couple of classes, but he, we took attendance at every one. We knew exactly how many times everybody had attended. Every, it was very regimented. But all of a sudden now you have four people who have completed four courses. You have three people who have completed three. These people are hungry. They're eager. They've never been in a leadership position. I wonder if maybe we ask them, They'd be interested, now that they are beginning to develop some skills and some understanding, that will qualify them to be considered for a leader. Well, I would have never thought of asking them. Their family's never been in a leadership position before. They've never been asked at all. Now they have a problem. 
there are so many people who are eager to be on the leadership team or on the worship team or on the praise team or anything else to be involved. They can't fill all the positions with the people that are interested. Just the opposite of what they had before. Okay? And the wall of hostility. Well, the board's the board, and the congregation's the congregation, and never the two shall meet. All of a sudden has fallen down. But it can cause difficulties. All right? And I don't want to say that the job is easy. I'm not making the recommendation to John Day to do anything like that. I'm telling you that there are structures within each group that make finding new options and new possibilities challenging. Okay? It's something we need to pray about. It's something we need to say, Lord, open my eyes to what we might be able to try as a congregation to become an exciting place to worship that people love to come and share. If you looked at what we've had the last several weeks, this is an exciting group. This is, this is turned on stuff. This is powerhouse stuff. But we just have to keep asking, what more can we do? We've got a community out here that doesn't know about it yet. We've got a community that has yet to hear about it. How can we find a better option to make it clear who we are and how, how much we want to be connected to them? All right? I'm going to stop this for a second and want to draw this to a conclusion because I want to ask you a question. Why was the Apostle Paul killed? Now, if that isn't a whiplash change in subject, we're talking about walls of hostility and all of a sudden, why are we talking about Paul and him being killed by the Romans? You remember? Why was he arrested in Jerusalem? <laughs> Bill's over here grinding away. <laughs> I'll, I'll relieve the pressure from the pressure cooker. <laughs> they accused him of bringing his associate Luke, who was Gentile, into the temple into the inner courtyard and defiling what they held as holy. Now, it was a long travel. I mean, there's a lot of book of Acts from the time when he's arrested in Jerusalem all the way through to when he goes to trial before the emperor, I mean the Caesar. It's, it's a long story. But if you start off saying, how did he start that walk toward Rome and his eventual execution? It starts in part because he was trying to break down the wall of hostility. Not he, he claimed he never did bring Luke in. He claimed that Luke did not come into the sanctuary or defile anything. He said he went in to fulfill a vow and that's all that he ever did was to fulfill a vow that he'd made to the Lord. 
But he was arrested on the charge that he had defiled their sanctuary by bringing in somebody who wasn't supposed to be there. Now, I say that because sometimes we get so caught up in our patterns. We get so caught up in our basic underlying social groups and, and our little cubby holes that we get people into that we forget that God broke that wall of hostility down with the person of Jesus Christ. I reminded folks in the Bible study, it, it was not big flames of fire on the heads of the men in that upper room when the Pentecost came and little ones on the ladies. All right? All the tongues of flame were the same size on those that were Jews and those that were not. Those that were followers from the beginning, which included, well, I guess you have to call it the, the 11 now that Judas is gone, and those that came along later. Those who were young and very inexperienced and those that were older and more knowledgeable those that were of the high economic rank? How do we know there were high people of high economic and social and religious rank? How do we know that? I thought they were all fishermen or something. How do, how do we know? Had some very, very powerful people in that room. Do you know why we know that? They were the host. It was their house. The beloved disciple was a very wealthy and very powerful and very responsible member of their community. And he was the host. Jesus, as the honored guest, sat right next to the man who hosted the dinner. And when the beloved disciple leaned his head over on Jesus' shoulder and whispered, who was it? Who's going to betray you? Jesus could whisper to him because he was that close to the very powerful man who was hosting their dinner and who kept the bars and <laughs> windows barred and probably should not have been all that scared of the Romans coming in to arrest him because he had a lot of clout. Okay? Remember, he's the one who could stand at the foot of the cross and not be arrested. Remember, he was the one who could walk into Pilate's inner chambers of the fortress of Antonio and listen to discussion back and forth between Jesus and Pilate. He was everywhere. And he could tell us what actually happened in those chambers and at the foot of the cross because God had moved his heart to want to be involved and be close to and be a partner, a follower of Jesus Christ. There were very powerful people there. And just like eventually the Roman guard, the well, I, I don't know how you would say it today. Maybe if you said the secret service that protect, protected the Caesar also became believers while Paul was waiting for his trial. 
God works in every group. God works in every heart. And He constantly pulls. He constantly speaks to us. I just finished a year and a half working with Nate Thomas, the pastor at the Bradenton Church. He's finishing up his tips pastor down there. And he has several phrases he likes to use. And the one that I love the best is, Mind the Lord. Every time he gets in a little pause, he'll stop and he'll say, Mind the Lord. And what is he saying? God's talking to somebody. God's talking to hearts. God's whispering, listen to him. Listen to him and, and respond to him and say, okay, yeah. That isn't what I thought. That isn't the way I expected it to go. But yeah, I, I hear you. Okay, Lord, I'm listening. Do the Samuel thing. Yes, Lord, your servant heareth. Okay? Let's close with a word of prayer, and then I'm going to open for questions, all right?